Welcome to Devotions in the Deep End. I'm Cam Buchanan from Mount Gambier, Australia, and this is my quest to teach the whole New Testament as deeply and helpfully as I can. So grab your Bible and a beverage of choice, and let's take a few intentional minutes together in the deep end. Welcome back to Devotions in the Deep End. Our passage for this episode is Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Caesarea Philippi is the backdrop of one of the greatest revelations of the New Testament. It was about 40 kilometers, 25 miles north of Galilee, at the base of Mount Hermon. You could actually see the mount on a good day from Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. This city had once been known as Panius, named in honour of the pagan god Pan, said to be the god of nature, mountains, shepherds, and sexuality. There was a shrine to Pan there, among other deities. In the time of Philip the Tetrarch, it was expanded from a village to a city, and in 14 AD, he renamed it in honour of Caesar Augustus. The name pretty much means Philip's Caesarea. It featured a shrine to the emperor cult, and it was a well and truly Hellenized city at the time Jesus was having this discussion, with a distinctly non-Jewish way of life dominating proceedings. This is essentially a cauldron of humanism, idolatry, paganism, and overly explored sexuality. And in this urban cauldron, Jesus gently prods his followers as to the real reason they are doing so. In this environment, with every type of religion and ideology represented, at least in part, Jesus presents a challenge to his disciples, one that is crucial to them personally, but also one that will stand in contrast and even conflict with all the things they were surrounded by at that very time. It wasn't in the relative safety of a synagogue or a secluded location such as a prayer retreat. It was in front of the whole world and even in their future mission field that this challenge is being issued. Who am I exactly? This probing starts in more of a macro way. What is all the scuttlebutt out there concerning me? What are the opinions? What parts of me have captured imaginations and are dominating conversations? What do you guys muse about in your spare time about who I am? What conversations arise at the markets or the third spaces that you frequent? And with this question, the floodgates open up. Well, there's one bunch of people who think you might be John the Baptist come to life again. We do know that Herod Antipas certainly felt that way. To him, he was the prophet that just would not die. There apparently was another bunch of people thinking he was the prophet Elijah back on earth all of a sudden. In the Old Testament, we know that he was taken up to heaven in a quite dramatic way, and he doesn't appear to have actually died to get up there. Also, Malachi chapter 4 points to Elijah being sent before the day of the Lord. Although in Matthew 17, Jesus will point to John the Baptist being that person. Other suggestions, such as Jeremiah, are also being thrown around as every backyard Jewish scholar is trying to work out who Jesus is. Every suggestion points to him being a prophet or something along those lines. 
As such, he was marveled at by some and misunderstood by others. He was honoured and welcomed by some, but also greeted with hostility by others. He was a little bit polarising. He could have been considered a little controversial. He was seen as loving, he was deemed wise, he was worshipped, but he was also hated within that one very small population group. He also happens to be a somewhat inconspicuous figure standing before the disciples, with the loud backdrop of Caesar worship and paganism going on all around them in Caesarea Philippi that day. But I believe this is by design. We then read that this inconspicuous figure takes the conversation to a micro level. That's all nice feedback, but now it's time to get personal. With all the noise of the crowd and the world going on around you in this crazy location, let me ask you this. What do you say? This is a question directed to the group. The Greek word for you is a plural word. He is not looking for an individual answer per se. He is looking for a collective and unanimous answer from his group of carefully selected disciples. Peter gets the credit for stepping up this time, but he's actually acting on behalf of the group, repeating the sentiment of the whole. And he does this with a clearly spirit-inspired response. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Everyone at the time was speaking with anticipation of the Anointed One, who was pointed to many, many times in the Old Testament. The Torah was filled with specific promises and loads of allusions towards this great messianic moment. There had been conversation behind the scenes as to whether Jesus was in fact that person, but Jesus let his actions do the talking instead of speaking it out in a direct way. This appears to have been a deliberate approach, because at the end of the day, the Messiah needed to be recognized out of divine inspiration and Holy Spirit discernment, and not by self-driven proclamation. The disciples, according to John, began following Jesus in the hope that he was indeed that Messiah. But the divine nature of that messianic call would not have been all that clear to them. To them, he would at least be a God-placed person who would be a deliverer of Israel. However, no one had specifically recognized Jesus the way Peter and the disciples have in this passage. Their full Christian understanding of Jesus would not be complete until after the resurrection. Without that event, how could it be, right? But here and now, their revelation of Jesus in that they knew him with certainty as the promised divine Messiah was as complete as it could get at this stage of their discipleship journey. Make no mistake, this was a massive development in their theological understanding of Jesus. Jesus commends their journey in a significant way here too, because they have reached the right conclusion, the right way unlike the Pharisees in the previous episode. He has clearly not coerced them to this conclusion. He has not demanded that they get their doctrinal position on him sorted as soon as they met him. He has journeyed with them, teaching them and letting his actions demonstrate his authority. And over many episodes, we have seen a sense of ongoing development in the conviction structure of these disciples. Now he brings them to what is arguably the culturally noisiest place he can find before asking them about their conclusions. In this place, with as little hype and fanfare as is humanly possible, Jesus asks them to decide who he is. Then, when the right answer comes, Jesus is able to endorse their conclusion, noting the work of the Spirit in bringing them to this conclusion. 
The Pharisees previously demanded signs on demand, but the disciples were open to the leading of God in the unseen, and they believed as a result. There is plenty more to say about this passage, but it's worth pausing here so we can deeply reflect. Let me ask this. Who do you say Jesus is? In the culturally noisy place where you and I sit, in the face of all the world's ideologies, demands, and doctrines, who is Jesus really? If you're a long-time believer, then hopefully I am speaking to somebody with formed conviction. Can I simply encourage you to keep your eyes fixed on the inconspicuous Christ in this culturally noisy place and time? The world around us is competing for our convictions and affections. So hold fast to your revelation of Jesus. There is also some amazing work for us to do with that foundational conviction, and we'll begin to cover that in the next episode. But if you're considering the claims of the Christian faith, perhaps this question is worth asking in a deeper way for you. Who is Jesus, really? Do you resonate with the scuttlebutt, the things that make Jesus out to be a pretty good guy? A number of studies indicate that despite the many failings of the church as an organizational structure, the world by and large has no problem with the historical figure of Jesus. I trust this is the case with you also. But this passage brings us to a realization that there is a deeper way to go with the identity of Jesus. Is he merely a good guy with a good message and a sad story of unfortunate self-sacrifice? Or could he actually be God? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3 tells us that nobody can say Jesus is Lord except through the prompting of the Holy Spirit. I pray even in this session that the Spirit of God is revealing something new about Jesus to you and prompting you to further consideration or even action. If this is the case, get in touch with a church in your neighborhood, with a friend, or even with me if the others are not as accessible. And let's talk about that. Thanks for tuning in. To learn more about this podcast and other ministries I'm involved in, go to my new website, www.ministryinthedeepend.com.au. You can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, and even YouTube. So please like, follow, subscribe, connect, and comment wherever you can. I'll look forward to catching up next time. See you then.